Welcome to the Good Day Sir monthly podcast. It's funny that we're on whatever episode this is, 277, and we still can't figure out how to put a damn document together and collaborate. <laughs> Someone should make some software for that. Um, sure. Let's, let's, let's do that so we can become billionaires. That sounds good. The billions. Well, John, how you been, man? I'm going to say good. I don't want to complain this week. Wow. That's a, that's a refreshing change. I'm trying. I'm trying to, trying yeah. to be positive, be to, mindful. <laughs> trying to have a PMA. So I can be a billionaire like Benioff and Jobs who were all mindful and meditated and hung out with monks. That must be the key. Must be. Because there's not billions of uh, people who meditate who are in poverty. So it must be the, must be the meditation. It's not poverty, it's happiness that I'm oh, trying okay. to... It's go. not riches, it's happiness. Right. Well, um, what do you want to start with today? Well, I got a couple of dev topics. I thought I could do a fire fire round, fire hose round of just my notable picks from the release notes since we're, we've got summer release notes now. Yeah. What did you just spam? Our, there's like seven pages in this document now well, of your spam. Because my formatting doesn't come over when I copy and paste oh, into our topic okay. document. But it looks nice on my Note app. Yeah. Well, what is your Note app? <laughs> bear. Bear. You like bears. I like bears. Yeah, like we've said that before. All right, well, why don't you get us started then? Awesome. I get to start it. Uh, so this is not going to be an exhaustive list. I'm just going to go through the ones that I thought were notable, uh, just for my needs. Uh, the release notes have gotten huge. What are they calling this new release? Summer 21. Summer 21. And when does it come out? I have no idea. Okay. I don't, I don't pay attention to that. They don't, I, well, and I don't, I'm not sure when they usually announce that. They don't. About a month before? Yeah, I don't know. I know we get them, but, and you can go to Trust and you can see all the, the maintenance release schedule and things like that to kind of see when it's coming out. And there are other people who are far more knowledgeable on this stuff. For some reason, they, they can, they stay on it. And I'm like, <laughs> dude, I'm trying to get my day done. And I see release notes going, I'll get to it soon. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get to it as soon as I can. So, um, Anyways, let's start with just the general customization stuff that they're adding to Salesforce, which I think will be pretty nice. Um, there is a new analysis component, which I think will be helpful on Lightning components. So it's supposed to measure how long your component is taken to render versus all their native components like related lists and things like that. So it'll give you kind of an idea of how much of your component is impacting the, the entire page, page's performance. I feel like Salesforce should use this on their own components. It's still, every, these screens just take so long. Well, we I can don't all under, participate I don't understand in that. It. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but sometimes, I mean, I, I create a page really and I wonder, am I, am, am I the jerk in this scenario <laughs> of why the page won't load? Yeah, oh, what the hell is that? Is that a ladybug? What is that? We're having all kinds of issues today. We're out of practice, John. There's We're some getting... kind of literal bug on my computer. I saw that. Oh. Even though that's what Bug refers to. Yeah. I should uh, hire an exterminator around here. Yeah. Uh, there's a new component. It's a pilot, but I, I'm pretty encouraged by it because I think it'll allow us to create better functioning pages without always having to rely on adding our custom buttons to the page level or even trying to put it on related lists and things like that. So it's called a dynamic actions bar. So you'll be able to basically slot in a component that gives you access to buttons and stuff that you can configure through the app builder. Can you explain that more? I'm not, I don't understand that. So just imagine a component, like a toolbar component that you can put onto a page okay. to a lightning page and you can just fill it up with buttons. 
And those buttons could be basically lightning actions and things like that. Hmm. So a button bar? Yeah. Okay. Right now, our main way of adding buttons to a screen is you have to add, go to the page layout and you have to add it to one of the existing uh, places where there's actions. So mm, that would be yeah. at the top on the record page. And then, of course, it does that drop down thing or, or things like that. Because this is a component and you can kind of customize the screen and the different components, you can kind of put buttons closer to where they need to be. Okay. So those sense. kind of scenarios. Yeah. This is weird because it seems like lately they've been doing a lot with pickless security. I'm not sure why there's so much attention on it, but there's a, there's another protection level on pickless that allows you to kind of prevent renaming of pickless names and things like that. So previously they added uh, locked pickless, which means you can't add any new values. So if you try to insert a record with a pickless value that isn't there, it'll throw an error. Was that called restricted pickless? Yeah. Okay. Now there's a new administrative toggle that says. Uh, when this is on, nobody can change any of the pick list, not even an admin, until you go in and turn that setting off. Can't change, like, the master values? Right. Oh, okay. So well, I mean, there. doesn't it require an admin to do that anyway? Or a delegated admin of some sort? I think it's kind of meant to to kind of lock in the system, like, at a production level, so no one's going there and changing things dynamically. I don't know. Hmm. Um, but it, it is kind of weird. They've also kind of done some changes with upper and lower bounds of how many pick list values that can exist on a on a value. Because you have a combination of those that are active and those that are inactive, and apparently there's upper limits on both of those. Hmm. I've never ha- hit those limits, so it's not something I've been concerned with, but it's interesting that they're putting a lot of attention in picklist lately. Yeah. Uh, usually um, when, when picklists start getting long, that's when I'm, I just think, well, maybe this should be another object. Yeah. I wonder if some of it came about because of the reliance on things like the state and country picklist, which are usually really big lists. Yeah. If that's why, because they're starting to see some limitations of the the architecture what is the limit on those i think the current limit is a thousand or something like that i I think the upper limits have been increased but that that's an that's an insane that's too many isn't it yes yeah uh they're adding the ability to add more custom fields so i think it's been increased to 900 i think it was back in the day it was 500 when i was doing stuff it looks like it says 800 um so up to 900 so more fields is better right is it um, I don't know. Depends, I guess. <laughs> I'm always scared when a client has a, has an object that's just got a ton of fields. It just it's kind of crazy. Yep. Uh, this one I think could be useful, so I noted it. Um, not that I have a need for it today, but uh, it's uh, on permission sets. So you can assign permission sets to someone, and you can you can set an expiration on it. So you can say, Jeremy, I'm giving you access for a month oh. on this permission, which means. Uh, maybe for a month, I need you to do some research on all the opportunities, but I don't want you to have access to all opportunities, and I don't want to have to rely on myself to remember to remove your access after you're done. Um, then this will allow you to kind of set up some dates, so time frames like day, week, months, or even just a custom date of when to shut it off. So. And that applies to the permission set itself, or the assignment of the permission set? To the assignment someone? of oh, a person. Oh, that's, I like that. Yeah. That's a nice feature. Uh, moving on to lightning components, this is one that I've been really wanting because uh, I showed you my workaround for this, and that is uh, you can't use lightning web components as a target for a quick action. So today with the quick actions, you can define a quick action button and you can tell it to launch a or a component. Yeah. Um, in which case, it loads its own modal, which you don't get to size, which is an issue, oh, and I had yeah. to work around that. And then your components embedded within that. Well. Now we're going to get to use Lightning components, and along with that, which there's no doc, there's documentation, but it doesn't, it's not exposed yet because it's not part of the 
release or whatever, but there's a new a new component called Lightning Quick Action Panel. And what I think that's going to let us do is define a Lightning component as a target for a quick action, but then allow us to manipulate that panel so that we can kind of, I'm hoping, size it up and, and do whatever we need to do um, while still maintaining that kind of modal interface look. Yeah. Uh, styling hooks are finally coming, which I'm very excited about. Uh, it's kind of been beta, and I've been really hesitant to use it because it's beta. I'm expecting things to really change quite a bit with that. Um, but it's going GA, so I'll, I'm looking forward to that, which is basically the, the ability to kind of import in style tags that are from the design system. Um, and it's also carrying over into Experience Builder, where you can pull in... Um, on the Experience Builder, you get an option to kind of define your branding guidelines and your color schemes, and there'll be hooks for you to grab those and use those in your CSS as well. How's it a hook? Is it is it just like you're able to, again, like you said, import you could so you can import the kind of the built-in style sheets that, that yeah, lightning with, uses? with modern css frameworks you can basically define variables in css and, right and you can reference those and before uh, within components you couldn't really reference you could reference certain ones but you couldn't override them so you couldn't say change that lightning button color text to to green or something you couldn't do that but now you can and the importance of that is that as you're kind of trying to define a theme or a style or something, especially for experience, for experience cloud, for sites, um, you want to be able to control that because you want to be able to style that. So as you're using lightning components, you want to be able to change those colors and everything. Yeah, so. yeah. Hmm. And it didn't always work. Like, it didn't always take its cue from the branding guidelines of the site. It's kind of like a broken mismatch. Okay. Um, I thought this was notable. <laughs> Because I remember I was interested in, in having some kind of framework that would kind of do UI testing for me. So basically, it would render the page and look and make sure everything was where it was supposed to be. Uh, Selenium type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, there's a big note about how they made a lot of um, changes to the DOM and everything of the CSS. And that's probably going to break some of your tests. And that's going to be an ongoing thing. Um, but yeah, it just, it just something to note. Every release is going to change something. Yeah. The design system is always fluctuating. What are they? So, what are this? What is their guidance if you are doing automated testing? Are there? There's probably like best practices. I guess you. They probably would call them. Uh, the best practice is to test it before every release because you know I don't. I don't think they have a comprehensive list of everything they're changing. I mean, I guess you could in the design system, but they don't always publish all the internal markup changes that they make. Right. It's like what? What do they try to guarantee that you can? That you can target in your automated tests. I don't know that they do. Yeah. I think I think it's just one of those things that's not officially supported, but they know you can do it. And if you're doing it, then just be cautious and and test often. Because I mean, I I think you know you see people doing this thing where they first they've got like extensive you know customizations in Salesforce, and so they use you know uh, these automated UI tests, right? To just literally, it's like clicking you know the the test is clicking through stuff, entering things in fields, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And what is your sense on how, you know, what, per, like, per, what percentage of organizations are doing that kind of testing? Probably very low. Very I low? Mean, maybe less than 10% are doing it. I'd, oh, I'd, I'd probably say less than 10%. But it's, um, it's such a... I do feel like it's the, it's the bigger, more important customers for Salesforce that are, that are doing that kind of testing. It's kind sure. of important, too, I, I think. I, I'm, I'm also curious of what, you know, when, they, when they're testing on a new release, of the things that break... 
what percentage of those are simply because you know like a, a CSS class that they were targeting or an ID for something changed. Yeah. But the actual functionality still there would you know to a user would be just fine. Like they wouldn't even notice a difference. Yeah. That's that's the danger to that kind of test. Well, the biggest change when it came to CSS was their deprecation of the BIM syntax for CSS, which yeah. used double underscores, which they wanted to get rid of because I guess it had something to do with XML. I don't know if all of this is getting compiled and saved as some kind of XML metadata somewhere and they didn't like that the there was those double underscores, so they changed it to I think a single or a dash or something. I don't remember. BIM is no longer the hotness. I've, I, you I've know, I, a, I liked the idea of BIM, but I could never get the cadence of BIM because I could never figure out what's my element, what's my, what's the block, block element uh, modifier is what BIM stands for. Oh, yeah. Um, and I could never figure out, I could never, not only is naming things hard, but trying to figure out what my block is and uh, what my element yes. is and what my modifier should be. And what if I have a modifier on top of a modifier? <laughs> yeah. It just. It was. It became difficult to try to manage that. Yeah, and this like, should this be a new block inside my other block? You know. Yeah. Yeah, that was always. Yeah. Difficult. Uh, so moving on, functions is still beta. I believe it's always been beta. I think it went beta in the last release, but it's still beta, so it's still out there checking along. Um, I don't really have much to say about that one. Still haven't used. Is it? Can you get it, or is it pilot? It says beta. Beta. That means that anyone can have it, right? I would assume so. Not something I played around with, though. I think I'll be able to... I mean, there's not often new Salesforce features that I think affect my personal daily life. Yeah. Personal business, I guess. My individual business life. But I think that's one I'm hoping I'll be able to use quite a bit. I think so. I think with your integration work and... I think this would be a natural carryover because you're so non-Salesforce development focused right now. Yeah. I think for I think for you know I don't know longer running jobs and different types of stuff I don't know if they intend it for that actually long running jobs but there's just some things yeah. that are difficult and like in um, in uh, what is Salesforce called is it batch no I guess it's batch I guess batch yeah, yeah I think batch. I see it more as an advantage of, and maybe I'm wrong but I I'm, I think about you know shared library or not shared libraries but lib access to libraries that you don't have access to in Apex. For certain things. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's so much stuff that, man, it's like, you know, if I just had, you know, could do Python or Java or something mm -hmm. where you've got just these really massive These domain-specific languages that are for this particular niche of a thing. Yeah. That, you know, if you use it, you can process that in milliseconds, where yeah. if you had to replicate in that Apex, it's two or three seconds. Or there's just, I mean, there's stuff. just things you're not, you're not going to do. Yeah. You just can't do. So many things, actually. Yeah. Like maybe a CSS parser or something. <laughs> right uh this one's good uh transaction finalizers will be ga so we'll get to to wholeheartedly start implementing those so that'll be nice so that's the finalizer action that'll happen after your async uh jobs have finished uh and i i think that happens without even if there's an error or anything like that you still get your finalizer this is what i call a queuable finalizer because in my from what i can tell that's the only place you can use it is is to finalize queuables uh, yes, that's my impression as well. <laughs> and unless they changed it, that was always my under that was my understanding after being corrected on yeah. what it was for. <laughs> I think transaction just sounds better. It sounds more businessy. Does and and less like you're waiting on stuff. Yeah. Uh, the another one, another one is, and this is a pilot, but I think it could be interesting. And it's a it's a new mode for database operations, which lets you say that I want to 
conduct this operation, whether it's a query or a DML operation, um, as a as the user. So right now in Apex, once you're doing DML operations, it does have context of who the user is, but it's technically running it under a system command or under that system context. Um, so this will officially lock it down as that particular user. So if you're trying to do something with data they don't have access to, it should throw the error. <clears throat> okay. Uh, it is a beta fe- uh, pilot feature, so it's nothing to, to really worry about right now since you've got to have to petition to get in that pilot but i wonder if that's is that does that just apply to like record access or also permissions for things um so the note here says that it's for database query methods search query methods and database dml methods like insert update upsert merge delete undelete and convert lead okay that's i mean that's really useful to be able to because like right now, how would you, um, I don't know, if you wanted to like run a query and send the results of that in some email or something, and you're doing that under the context of a user, based on a, like a, you have a user click a button and then it does that. Mm-hmm. I guess, I mean, if, okay, so currently if you, if you say um, with sharing and you run that query, you're only going to get things that user has access to. There's other SQL commands that I think that you can use, because you can query as system context, you can query data that the user doesn't have access to in fields. Um, but you have to do without sharing, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. This one's going to take some exploring to understand where it's good to use. Well, maybe the, maybe the big difference is, is with that, you, um, it's not just whether you want the context user or system. You can actually pick an arbitrary user. No, is that, no, no. you can't? Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought, too, but I specifically looked for that language and it's not so it's basically just whether you're running this operation under the guise of the system or under the user context um and i guess there's different scenarios where this could be an issue i i'm thinking mainly lightning in that context um as opposed to visual force which should already have that context in every other place i'm thinking that interface between the lightning interface and your your aura enabled methods um which I wish they would change to, some, yeah. to not say Aura, but uh, essentially your API between Apex and, and Lightning Web Components. I think that's where this probably comes into play. Because yeah, Visual Force did a lot of that, especially like with fil- uh, field-level mm-hmm. type stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this one I'm looking forward to because I've written my own access to build the navigation component. So if you're not familiar, inexperienced cloud. Um, and this is Community, right? Communities, Community. what used to be communities? Experience, Experience Cloud. cloud. Um, you can define a navigation menu. It's part of the, the normal standard thing. Um, but there's, there was only one native component that would render that. So if you wanted to create your own navigation component with your own rendering style and everything, you had to build a custom component. And if you were in Aura, you could, you could annotate with an implementation that would allow you to use that and it would become part of the normal thing. But with Lightning Web Components, that interface isn't there. So you basically have to build it, and you have to query the underlying objects to get all that data. Um, which turns out is probably two or three different objects, especially if you're going to make it multilingual, because then you have to factor in the language and then pull in the translated value and map that back and all that kind of stuff. So um, there's a new, on the Connect API, the Apex version of the Connect API, and on the public, the REST API version of it, um, there's a method for accessing the uh, navigation menu. So you should be able to just call a method and have it return everything, including uh, the image URL that goes along with that navigation menu, which is something that 
was very difficult to do if you're querying because from what I found, it took I think four or five hops to finally get what the actual image URL, or at least where the image URL mm. ID is, yeah. <laughs> before I could then build a URL string. Um, so that should help out a lot. Um, Salesforce is continuing to deprecate older releases of the API. Uh, in fact, after summer 22, um, APIs from 7 up to 20 will be removed, and REST 20 will be removed, and bulk 16 to 20 will be removed, meaning you won't be able to access those versions of the API anymore. Wow. Yeah. Which um, I guess they're probably sending out notifications that, you know, if they detect you using yeah, those. Yeah, they'll, I'm sure they'll send out notifications, but there's also going to be a warning message in the in the API message itself. If you're looking at the logs, you should see a return warning message back mm -hmm. that says, you know, this is being deprecated. If anyone's looking at those. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My bigger fear is that I've written something years ago that's that's still running somewhere and still using it. and. I mean, hopefully someone's getting those admin emails, though, because they're probably sending emails to admins yeah. if their org has been using the old versions. Yeah. Uh, so this is interesting with packaging. Um, it's not something I had thought of because I haven't been in the, haven't really needed to do patch, uh, unlock or second generation packaging patches, which is something you could do with first generation packaging, which was kind of a pain and kind of a beast because it actually involved a whole new org. Um, but there's a way to flag your packages as being um, part of a branch. So we know that second generation is source-based or source control-based. Um, so now you can basically say, this is the branch for this, um, for this version of this release. So that allows you to say, um, release one, here's the branch for that, and you can continue to make modifications and patches to that. Um, or maybe you just have a separate branch for each patch, and you can keep doing that. Um, so that just allows you to kind of better manage your 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 code and your packaging. Well, that's something I put yeah. into use, but... Like a version control branch or a different kind of branch? Like a version control branch, yeah. Mm. It's very tough enough trying to keep my branches straight. Can't tell you how many times I thought I was in one branch and... Oh. Or, or stupid so me was doing uh, git branch dash b my name trying to create a branch. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Get the check, check out. out. Yeah. yeah I've done that. <laughs> I'm like, why yeah. isn't this working? Uh, I felt dumb. I kind of don't like that branch. They put branch, they shortcut branch operations to the checkout command. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of weird, I, isn't it? I mean, I get the reason. It's a common use case. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to create a branch and check it out now. Right. But I don't know. It does lead to confusions. Yeah. I, I, I still, one of my biggest problems is, you know, if there's a project with, you know, several different branches, you know, so you, you know, I have your, like your typical long running branches. So you've got master, depending on how you use that, you've got dev, mm -hmm. you've got like, I don't know, maybe there's a, a branch for different environments. Like you might have a UAT branch or something or a QA branch. Yeah. So, cause, and it will always point to like whatever's in that environment. And then on top of that, you might have feature branches. Like, okay, let's implement, you know, XYZ feature. So you create a feature for that. You know, that's, maybe that's in your, you've got to, you know, you deploy that to some local environment or something. And then um, just like remembering, I guess, what, you know, and especially when people are like, oh, let's, let's, okay, let's go ahead and deploy your feature XYZ. Let's go ahead and get that in UAT. I'm like, well, wait a minute. 
we already have a branch in UAT. Do you, you know, or, or they want to cherry pick like, mm-hmm. okay, let's do this feature and that other feature. I'm like, wait, well, wait a minute. No, no, those are all in the same branch. So you get that whole branch. I don't, I don't get to, I mean, that you can kind of cherry pick, but that's a whole other kind of mess. Yeah. You have to branch off your branch and I mean, you really have to, you have really have to plan these things. You yeah. have to know, you have to have a plan for what you're going to, what's going to be in a release. Yeah, and I think for, for traditional software development, that works because we usually have a roadmap and we can usually define what's going to be in that and, and we can group all those features as one product. But uh, with the work that we kind of do with consulting, sometimes it's, it's a little bit more dynamic in that hmm. as you're developing, certain features are ready and they want to start testing those or they're given higher priority because of some situation that came up or a bunch of things got put on hold and now there's only one valid feature that can move forward. So. Yeah, and that's when you do have to start. You know, you can ch- start cherry, and hopefully, you, you know, if your if your commits are granular enough, you can you can with Git. You know, you can. I try, cherry but they're not. Yeah, they're I not know. always. Sometimes I end up with a freaking tree, and I'm like, okay, I, I try to do my due diligence and go in and check. That's why I use the tooling, so I can check and say, okay, this one here's my notes for that one. This one here's my notes for that one. But there are some times where I'm just like, all of you're going one commit. Yeah, because think about, I mean, any given commit, I mean, it can have code that depends on its parent commits mm-hmm. and so you can't it's not like you can just cleanly cherry pick a certain commit and move it to another branch right because it that other branch may not have these parents that have you know this dependent code like the code that you've depended on right yeah my test detail my my, my test factory class is the biggest offender of that because in a branch i'll, I'll create references to new objects yeah now I've seen other test factory methods that are that are more abstract. You basically tell it what object type, but it doesn't actually know about the object. But mine, I just go and explicitly define the objects that I'm referencing, and I tell it go create those and all that kind of stuff. Well, that becomes a problem when I need to release that test class along with another feature. But there's other parts of it that aren't going to be released uh, in terms of metadata objects and things. So that's been an issue for me. Yeah, I end up having to comment out about a bunch of stuff and yeah deploy it. I, yeah and then again i don't know the, but i think you just you know you have to like whoever you're working with you know the team has to have a strategy and they have to understand that it's important to have a strategy and that if you you know if you end up if your strategy ends up not being sound or your plans change a lot it could be painful yeah we'll put a pin in that because we're gonna talk about that next tuesday with the team are we i think it's tuesday oh, okay okay <laughs> Uh, so, uh, MFA multi-factor authentication is being postponed. Um, the, the, the requirement to, requirement okay. to, to the forced requirement that would enable it. You can still opt in and enable it now, which of course Salesforce is asking you to do. Um, but they're going to delay the strict enforcement till spring 22. Um, so I guess you get a year. I guess security is not that important. Just too much of a pain in the ass, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the reasoning. I'm not sure which big client raised their hand and said, we can't do this. Yeah. <laughs> and why, what, you know, what would be the, why couldn't you? I don't know. I don't know. What's the problem? Because, I mean, any large organization would probably have SSO enabled anyways, and that would bypass it, right? So it would only be people who are physically logging into the Salesforce user interface that would is this one of those things that they'll blame on millennials because millennials don't know how to use computers or whatever, whatever it was. Remember that? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Star millennials can't do nothing. Well, I, just, I don't even, I guess, I think I've made this clear before. I don't, I don't really buy any of that generational <laughs> stuff. 
it's just you know like Scott, quit blaming stuff on millennials no it's easy it is time. easy i know uh so the next one is uh, uh scratch org org shapes on scratch orgs it's beta um i don't know if that's a change from last time i thought it was beta last time um but either way it's still a beta thing which i'm looking forward to bga because uh, right now, I would really like to be able to create scratch orgs from my client orgs um, by enabling their hub and and shaping like their production orgs so yep. that I can do things specific to their licensing, their features, um, those kind of things. Can't do that with scratch orgs yet. Well, I mean, yeah, you can. You what, can, what, but what you have this? to manually set it up. So, um, oh, oh, you can just say make it like this other environment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of cool. I guess just, you know, if whatever environment that you're telling it to copy the shape of, you know, if that ever changes, that you're going to get that in your scratch org too. I guess, or maybe, then only the next time you create a scratch org. Probably doesn't affect, you know, existing scratch orgs. Or maybe it does. I don't see how it could, actually. I don't think it could. No, it's point in time at the point you yeah. create that scratch org is when it takes the shape of it. Uh, it's not something I've put a lot of thought into, but it's not something that I can see valuable, but I haven't put the time into understanding all the nuance of it. So, I remember when I used to think, man, you know, the Java world is just so much more complex than Salesforce. And now it's like, man, the Java world is so simple compared to Salesforce. <laughs> it is so much more complex than Salesforce nowadays. Well, it's, it's interesting how simple things can be when you have one known build. That's true. Or when you have a known build. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, speaking of BIM, uh, the deprecation of of the double dash in bim has been postponed uh it says indefinitely i think um yeah the deprecation has been postponed indefinitely man people are not wanting their cheese moved no they're not <laughs> um salesforce getting a lot of pushback so yeah it'll it'll still be around i guess for those legacy um legacy folks um i've, I've tried to move on but there's a lot of just stuff that i've written in the past that are using those still. it's gonna it'll break right yeah but you're not using hooks. You're able to access it anyway. In terms of yeah, these new hooks you're talking about. Well, yeah. I mean, if I had still had access to that code and those orgs and those clients, then yeah, I could go in and update it. But I don't anymore. I've moved on. Yeah. I mean, there's stuff back when Aura was a thing and Visual Force. You were you enabled the design system in the Visual Force and you were using the tags directly. I bet my I bet my old Visual Force still looks the same. Yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> <laughs> Still ticking along, huh? Well, uh, Visual Force, I mean, I guess one of the, you know, good or bad things, but if, if you didn't want to get into doing much custom styling, it just inherited whatever Salesforce's current style was. Yeah, and it didn't do, it didn't, wasn't bad. It was okay. It did pretty good. And look, like business software, you know, <laughs> you're not going to win any awards, but it gets the job done and it looks kind of native. Well, I've already talked about the design tokens and the color, um, the color system. So with the design tokens, Salesforce did do a lot of work to improve their color system, um, which is basically going through all the colors and making sure they had proper contrast, which is something the current design system did not have. In fact, I, I have to tweak um, for the experience sites that I'm building. I have to tweak some of those because the contrast isn't good enough to pass. Uh, and I'm, and that's just using, using some kind of tool to check for that. I was about to say, I'm just using lighthouse right now. If I was to use something oh. else that would be a little more stricter about it, it'd probably flag a lot more things, but lighthouse is pretty, pretty lenient. What does it look, does it just look at color of text compared to its background? 
Um, it looks for usages of colors that don't have that are known to not have a good high contrast. Um, so it's not like it's actually doing any major analysis. It's just reading it and looking at what it can find. It's also looking for missing things like tags or titles or or aria oh, okay. labels and things like that. The it, general accessibility stuff. Yeah, general accessibility stuff. Yeah. yeah, nothing, nothing concrete. But if I was to run a true analyzer, which I'd have to pay for, um, it would tell me a lot more things. Well, forget that then. Yeah. I already saw your wallet clinch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there is a link to the Medium article, which has been around for a year. I think it was released back in August, and I read it. Um, the what? Media what? Medium. A medium, medium article. article. Gotcha. Um, where Salesforce posted kind of their their uh, reasoning and their analysis of the color system, and then it shows, a, I think it's an image, um, but all the, all the color schemes that you'll, all the colors that you'll be able to use. When's Salesforce going to move its Medium blogs to Substack? I don't know. What's the difference between Medium and Substack nowadays? I don't know about Substack. Really? No. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> well, go look at it. Whenever I learn about it, they'll do it. No. It's no a lot they're of moving everything to their own help system. Oh, I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems to be doing. They're going to move their, they're gonna move their Medium blogs to, to the help? Oh, I'm sure those will just sit there, but I'm... I don't know. Maybe. Mm. <coughs> sorry. Um, sorry, this link is taking a while to load. Uh, this is something I never paid attention to, but I probably should have. Um, there's So whenever you get to a site, it gets, gives you a generic, um, or a, whenever you go to a page on your experience site that isn't recognized, so someone's in there typing around okay. or goes to a, a dead mm-hmm. link, um, I think it would just show a generic... 404 page that was blank or something um but now you'll now there's access to customize that page um so there's some tooling there custom 404 response yeah that's always been there but i think customizing i think before it was like a standard visual force page or something you would modify or something but now there's an actual lightning builder tool for managing that again it's not something that's always top of my mind so i always forget to modify that and style it so it always ends up being the default so maybe with it being in the builder um i'll remember it this time yeah a lot of stuff john i'm I'm almost there i'm almost there this is this is mainly site stuff um they're paying more attention to the accessibility of sites so now there's there's some some places to add assistive text to images so whenever you add images to the assets of your site you can you can start annotating um, the description text. So that's for readers, basically, to be able to understand what that image is. And does that, what does it do? Does it put it in, anytime you use that image, it just puts in the, like, what is it, alt, the alt text and the title or something? Yeah, it should put it in the alt text. Okay. Uh, and this one's, this one's interesting. This is the last thing I'll talk about. Yes. Uh, no, it's not the last thing I'll talk about, but so this was a bit confusing because we have this template called the LWR. And ever since it was announced, it, it required access to the uh, Salesforce CMS licensing, which is their kind of content management system license that you have to have. Um, and I believe in previous releases, there was also a template called Build Your Own LWC. But it looks like they've abandoned that, and they're going to allow us to use the LWR without the Salesforce CMS licenses. So basically, in summer, everyone will be able to get to use that Build Your Own template um parentheses lwr 
uh, which basically allows you to have a completely lightning web component experience site. Currently today, if you want to do things like style the theme and the position and layouts, um, you still have to go back to Aura components and use those implementation um, libraries or whatever they're called. Um, this sounds, so, this sounds so complex. <laughs> <Just like> a... <laughs> well, it, the way I have to do it today is I use the build your own template. But if I want to change the, the layout of the header or have like a global header and a global footer or change how those, how responsive those are to, to sizing and, and positioning, I have to create that template in Aura because it's the only one that has the hooks, the library hooks to, to enable that. And then I drag and drop my components into that. Um, so it's kind of this living foot in both worlds type thing. And so this will allow me to focus purely on LWC stuff, uh, which will make my life much easier. So I have a question for you. For people who are like getting started now with Salesforce UI development, do they still have to learn Aura? There's some places where you do. I mean, because you've described to me, not just today, but in other times, like several things that still require Aura in some form or... Yeah, there's still a lot of places where that's true. And unfortunately, it's tough to get them to communicate with each other. Um, it's not always clear what event system you can implement and sometimes it works, but it's not, it's not something you should rely on in terms of how to communicate between the two. Um, so we have different event systems that we try to hook together and, and apply. Um, I didn't see that the LMS lightning messaging service, um, it's been beta. I didn't see it show up in this release as a GA. So I'm assuming it's still beta. Um, but last release, it was a beta, which is kind of disappointing because I really need that to be enabled for experience because right now I have my own custom-built event system and yeah. I really rather have the native-supported messaging system, which allows you to define a, a channel, which is kind of weird because you have to do that with metadata. There's no interface to say, here, create this channel. You have to create the XML uh, metadata for the channel and then push that, and then you can start con managing that with your pub-sub. Mm. architecture okay um so i'm sad about that and also this this template will come with all the hooks for whenever you go into the experience builder to the lightning builder and you set your color schemes this one will have all the hooks so that you can hook into and grab whatever color the user picked so if the user picked something as their background you can make that apply everywhere you need to mm. so reminds me of the uh Microsoft Windows 95 and the Plus Pack. The Plus Pack. Did you ever get that? No. I don't think so. Hmm. You know what's funny? Because I used to customize the crap out of Windows. Oh, I did too. What was that tool that you could like change the whole theme and everything? I, I Power something. Something. Um, what was that called? It's not PowerShell. No. I just had the Plus Pack. It wasn't that, was it? It was some yeah. kind of power tool or something. Yeah. But yeah. You could, uh, you could, you could, in fact, I think I had, I had a lot of fun making my windows look like Mac OS at the time. Oh, really? With the dock bar and everything. <laughs> so that's funny. Cause what I was, what I was going to say was it's, it's funny how on now on the Mac I do, there are things like that I'll customize. A lot of it's just like dot file stuff, but a lot of it nowadays is, um, what are the settings called? You have to kind of run uh, something on the terminal to update anyway, whatever those are called. I've got, a, I've got several of those that I run just to customize things the way I want, but I don't, I'm trying to think of what customization I do to the visuals of, of the Mac. And I don't think I do 
any. I don't. Is that good or bad? It's is it good? I mean, because to me, it's like, okay, I feel like they've done a good... I mean, that's one thing I, I like about Mac OS as compared mm-hmm. to some, really any other operating system, is I feel like they do a better job of really crafting the UI. I mean, everything about it. The contrast, the fonts, the spacing, the consistency between things. And I'm like, I'm not going to improve this by getting yeah. in there and jacking around with stuff. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I've tried to put the toolbar on the left and right and all that kind of stuff, but I always end up putting it back where it was. It just it just fits better where it was. Uh, the one thing I do do is I have the transparent um, menu bar at the top, just so it kind of blends in with my background a little bit more. But those are just little tweaks. I'm not like well, that's default, right? I think I turn that off. Maybe I don't. I don't know. I don't remember if I made that do that or or what. But I remember at one point it was a setting, and I I made it do that. But either way. Yeah, there was um, there's like what again one of these kind of behind the scenes settings that you can set that to mm-hmm. turn off like the transparency, but behind yeah things, yeah. I guess that bothers some people. I I don't know. I've never gotten a lot of value out of that. I don't think. Well, depending on if it's transparent and there's not enough, if there's too much opacity, I think is what I'm trying to say. Then you might not get enough contrast. So you can't read what's there. Oh, I don't think you can ever read what's there, can you? It seems way too blurred to me. But it's also it's just yeah, and it's. I just mean between your background color and the text, oh, or whatever you okay. picked. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Like if you picked an all black background and your text is still black, and it's it's maybe got a little bit of opacity with the white, and it's it's not enough to make it readable. Yep. Oops. Have you ever tried the? Um, I think this is about to be the just a phone thing, but that reduce was it reduce motion or something like that? No. Yeah, it's in accessibility. I think it's on the phone. Uh, I think I guess on any iOS device. Or it's either called reduce motion or or reduce animation, something like that, but kind of makes things faster actually huh. i don't think i use it now but i in the past i've i've had that on just because you're not you're not waiting for animations it's just much more instant got things to do places to see yeah exactly you're I busy don't person. Have time for these animations <laughs> <laughs> all right the last thing i'm going to cover is uh the streamline asset setup for the what is this for oh for assets objects you can celebrate success with a virtual confetti toss and that got me to thinking, I think we need confetti everywhere. Uh, so I came up with a few examples. Uh, quick action confetti. So you can create a quick action that whenever the user clicks the button, they get confetti. Mm. Um, and LWC component confetti. That way I can put it into my component and I can launch confetti. Uh, a login confetti. Every time you log in, how about some confetti? Maybe right. a logout confetti because you were secure. Right. You, oh, you clicked logout. Yeah, you clicked yeah. logout. Yeah. <laughs> How about it? Uh, how about an MFA? Oh, yeah. There you go. Because you got MFA on. <laughs> yeah. uh, deployment status confetti on success. So whenever it's successful, right now it doesn't always. It's not always clear that it succeeded. You got the little fish guy. Oh, I was saying, how about deployment fish confetti? Yeah. If anytime you you know achieve deployment fish, then uh, you get confetti. Or if you're uh, oh, what do they call those people that like pain? Um, masochist. Masochist. If you're a masochist, how about? Confetti every time you create an object and a field. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> uh, how about view setup audit trail confetti? So every time you go in to review your, your audit trail for setup, making sure no one's doing things they're not supposed to, get some confetti. I, John, I think, I think you've just secured yourself a job at Salesforce. I did. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking this at least, least VP level. This one's going to clinch it. <laughs> a trailhead badge after receiving 100 confettis. 
Uh, oh, wow. But when you get a badge, you get confetti for that. Oh, double <laughs> confetti. <laughs> I think we might have just created an infinite loop, though. We might have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a problem. Um, so I encourage everyone to go to our GDS Slack. And if you have ideas for confetti. Oh, wow. Toss them up there. Mm. See, and that's how you know this is a valuable Slack to be in, John. Mm -hmm. confetti, confetti ideas. Talk. Yeah. <laughs> it's confetti talk. <laughs> uh, speaking of infinite loop, can I tell you how I screwed myself for like an hour? Okay, yeah. I'm, I can't <laughs> wait to hear about this. <laughs> it's really dumb. But uh, I have a component and I have a wired method. And in this component, the API is that you should be able to tell it just load whatever you can, and here's the limit. Load 100 records or something. Um, or you can tell it, load these specific records. So there's, a, there's an API property where you can say, here's ID 1, 2, 3, go load those. Um, if you don't, then the UI presents a list of options, and you can pick the ones you want to display. So you can get everything or a limit, or you can pick the ones you want to display. Okay? Kind of make sense? Yeah, I think so. Well, stupid me mapped the the option selector so it's basically a group checkbox that lets you say i want to see this 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 to the wired method instead of the, the api property that came back and they're both named very similar one of them is selected ids which is the one that should go to the wired method the other one is just selected which mm -hmm. is what matt which is what the selected option group maps to and so every time i loaded this component salesforce would freeze nothing would happen it javascript is my 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 PC fan is going crazy, and I could not figure it out. I kept, I kept going through everything. I disabled and commented and uncommented things until I finally found that, and boy, did I feel like a darn idiot. Mm -hmm. I hate those. Yeah. All right. Anyways, just be careful about your uh, wired properties. Well, you, you've been talking a lot, so let's... Um, yeah, I need a break. Let's do some audio content. Hopefully this will work. This is interesting. It was just uh, Benioff talking about his Uncle Larry. Let's see if this works. Come on, Internet. I, I love how fired up you are. And I do want to directly ask you about Oracle because they are a big rival of yours. I mean, do you wish that you had made a play to have the cloud contract with TikTok? And do you think it's a big win for them? Well, you know that Larry Ellison is my mentor. He was my first investor at Salesforce. He was my first board member. There would be no Salesforce without Larry Ellison. I am absolutely indebted to him. I am very grateful to him. We're very close friends. And Larry has a huge vision for the world. He is an incredible executive. And you should never sell Larry Ellison short. Everyone in the world knows that. That's a very complimentary of, of Uncle Larry. It is, but. When they say TikTok is on Oracle's cloud, mm -hmm. Salesforce doesn't offer that kind of cloud. Uh, but you think news dummies understand that? Okay. News readers? I just couldn't Come get on. past that point. I was like, well, of course they didn't go to Benioff. She's just reading what was on the prompter. Okay. <laughs> so, look, I don't understand everything that's going on, but wow, I'm, I'm so impressed by seeing, you know, them and everyone else make these aggressive moves because I'm mostly worried about the company that aren't making aggressive moves. I'm calling CEOs who are friends of mine who are in paralysis and who aren't making moves. And I'm saying, look, you've got to get into participation. You've got to get out of paralysis and into participation. You AKA spending a bunch of money on IT. 
Digital transformation. Buying companies. You have to become relevant. You know, Larry Ellison is the master of relevance. You know, this is a move to make him relevant. This is so important. And by the way, he's giving you a master class in relevance. And three, you have to enable your organization in new ways. Let me tell you, we're having, you know, weekly all hands calls with tens of thousands of employees every single week. We haven't done that since we were a startup because we have to enable people in new ways. These ideas, participation, relevance, you know, this enablement, th this is what we have to be focused on if we're going to accelerate and go forward. And Did he trigger you, with, trigger you with that word? He just wasn't answering the question. He was just like, he had the speech prepared and he just went off on it. Yeah. And then we have to deliver the tactical plays and success stories to make it happen. And I think some companies are making that happen. And some companies are just sitting back and being too passive. And you've got to look at both of these organizations. Yeah, just a little bit of context. This was a video that I just came across, but it, it when I in my I was just like looking for stuff and mm -hmm. uh, it was from it was last year, but I don't remember hearing this though. I just I just thought it was I was thought it was nice that he had some nice words for Uncle Larry. You know, sometimes you know you have that estranged uncle that every once in a while, you know, like, well, he's actually not that bad. He's a pretty good guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now we've always said that these all these tech CEOs, they're all buddies. Oh, yeah, and it's it's just for... Uh, for theater. Know, yes, and, and for its media fodder and yeah. stock market fodder. Well, obviously, she has banning off about freaking the wrong cloud. She, she asked about the false cloud, Jeremy. <laughs> she doesn't know one cloud from another. She doesn't know about the I'm false cloud. She doesn't know her past from a hole in the ground. <laughs> it's the state of our journey. get that, John? What? Uh, come on. I didn't you, get it. She doesn't know her pass from a hole in the ground. Oh my gosh. Everyone in the world just got that joke except for you. No, I'm dumb. Okay. <laughs> you know what a pass is? Throw something. A platform as a service. Oh, okay. Okay, I got that part. Now what's the other part? She doesn't know her pass from a hole in the ground. Okay, I got it. It's a play on the yeah. good old saying, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, got it. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Finally. <laughs> All right. Um, I also have, I clipped some, a few things. I thought it was an interesting discussion. Hopefully the least in the right order. I'm not sure they are, but it was the, uh, oh, it's one of these Kote podcasts. I think it's a software talk or something like that. Um, enterprise talk. I don't know. But they were talking about, and this is kind of one of our evergreen topics, but it's about licensing of these, of this enterprise software and how we wished it was, were different. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'll just play these and we can, whatever, stop. Salesforce and Tableau, and it's interesting now that obviously Tableau is bought by Salesforce. The number one problem is they license their products by uh, users, right? Therefore, there's an incentive to keep the number of users down, to like limit it to only so-and-so people who needs it. But frankly, everyone in the company, I think, really needs access to Salesforce so you can just see what's going on. Now, of course, that this makes all the, you know, Salesforce shareholders and everyone, I'm super happy to hear things like that, right? Like, the, mm -hmm. just give everyone access to Salesforce. Ching-ching, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, we'll see what's happening in the deal, right? And like, if, yep. uh, and then same thing with yep. Tableau. It's like, who doesn't, you know, I don't think you'd ever, most companies won't say nobody here needs Excel, right? They do a deal that's like, well, everybody just gets it. It's like, just sort of like, you have to have it. So that's my, uh, my belief is that if Salesforce and Tableau could come up with some licensing model where it's like, no, we want everyone in your company to be using it. That's how you get the most value. And we're going to price it in a way that makes sense. 
I, I think the usage of those tools could go up. I think you know exponentially. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I just even with with community itself. I mean, that's that's my biggest pain point as well. It's just we have we have schools of, of varying different sizes that they want to do more with Salesforce. They want to move a lot of the onboarding, the application process, the clearance process, basically the the students' interaction with the school from an online degree uh, onto Salesforce. And I want to provide that, but it's really difficult when I have to have the conversation of, well, how many licenses can you buy? Yeah. I mean, you do need to pay for it, you know? That's the thing. It's yeah, like, I agree. Um, but we're talking about volumes here. Uh, we're talking yeah. about, you know, things that need to be a little bit more accessible given given the audience. And and it's all, it goes back to just the good old you know, supply and demand curve. So if you, you know, if you lower the price of something, let's, so, you know, let's, guys, let's say, you know, you're, you're, you have a company, a big company, 10,000 employees, and a thousand of them have Salesforce licenses. Mm-hmm. And the other 9,000 don't because, you know, it's expensive, it's enterprise software. And they just, maybe you don't think they need it quite as bad as the users who do have it. Maybe they wouldn't use it as much. Maybe they wouldn't get quite as much value out of it. Maybe, because he keeps talking, I've got a couple other clips about how, you know, some of the users just kind of need a read-only mode, right? Type of thing. And so, if, if so, if you did reduce the price, the question is, would you make up that revenue by people saying, by companies saying, "Oh, you reduce our li- per license price, we'll just we'll just net we'll just gross that back up to the same money we were spending and just buy more people licenses in our company." Yeah, would, th- that's my question though. Would they do that? I think they would. I think there's plenty of cases where. They had to make hard decisions on who would have access to Salesforce and who wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, if I can seg- not segue, but interject, one of my questions for you was um, someone had asked this on Reddit is what is the best practice for API integration users? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And technically, the right answer is every one of your integrations should have a unique ID, but that's expensive. So you end up with one integration account. So whether it's your Tableau or your, your um, ERP system and all that, they're all computed and you don't know who did what. Because yep. they're all sharing the same account. Yeah. So the right answer is they all do. But because it's so cost prohibitive, they don't. And how many clients have kind of done the kind of sidestep and and shared accounts or or done things that are inaccessible because oh, yeah. because they just can't afford the licensing. Yep. Where I think if, if you can create a model where it's it's much more accessible for more people to have access and it's less of a barrier, you have a more secure system. Because people are less likely to try to get around it or yeah. share. I don't know. I kind of think that the um, the concern is okay. Fine, we'll cut the price in half for licenses, and then you're not going to have that much more of an increase in license buy. Not not near enough to make up the revenue loss. I think that's the concern there. I thought we were about stakeholders here. Yeah, I well, thought we were po- talking about democratizing software here. You can talk about stakeholders all you want, John. You're talking about profit, you money grubber. I know. I'm- I'm a I'm a capitalist 1.0. I need to. I'm behind the times. Okay, I got a second clip here. Hopefully, these are in the right order. In the case of Microsoft, they can just give a license for Office to everyone, right? Because their volume is so high that it doesn't matter. Which seems like a monopolistic antitrust thing, right? That you would be in such a position. But in fact, it's great. And instead, if you structure your pricing such that like as often encounters with me, I'm like, oh, hey, could I do that? And the people are people are like, oh, it's charged per seat and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, whatever. 
right? It's just, it's just sort of like it's right, you just give up. There's nothing you can do, tool. right? And you don't have right. the power. So, you, it's not, you can't, there's, even if you wanted to, you can't buy it yourself. There's no way to get it, right? You're just right. You're so, done. So I th- maybe what we need is some pricing that would compel application sellers to make it more available to people so that I can use the software without having to figure out how to file a PO. Yeah, no, I, I think it's as easy as like if I was, you know, uh, running in Tableau, of course, they have all the data they have. They can do the analysis themselves. They've got great tools. We'd be like, OK, take the average price per customer and, and the number of seats. Right. And then actually go look at the size of the companies. Right. And then figure out a way to listen, I'm going to do a deal with them. Right. That if they buy a certain volume. Right. They're basically going to pay the same amount to get access, but get access for everyone. And I'm going to, I'm going to arm my sellers. That's what I was, just what I was, just what I was saying before. Like you walk in with a a pitch deck. That's like, Hey, the value of Salesforce is it's the life run of the company. Everyone needs to have access. And you can say most people have read access. That's fine too. We don't want everyone messing up their opportunities and everyone would be like, fine. Right. Or include, you know, include a number of read only access licenses in most cases. I think you do the same thing with Tableau because you don't generally need all the features. Did we already hear that? Mm-mm. Okay. And then there's Salesforce is awesome. a great example. I just want to be able to read Salesforce myself because what happens if you go to more large companies, I don't think I'm breaking any news here is somebody has been like, has what you, what you do is you get to the Salesforce admin. You said, listen, I need you to run an export of all the opportunities mm-hmm. every Friday night. And then you put that in a CSV, right? And then somebody gets really good and they create an incredible pivot table, a pivot table that, mm-hmm. that, that basically <laughs> rebuilds Tableau inside Excel. And you're like, I mean, there's so many rows and pivots. You're like, it's hard. Like you, someone has to train you on how to use the pivot table, right? That's the kind of level of thing you get to. And then that's the pivot table is become like how everybody else in the company accesses Salesforce through the pivot table. And it's like, but you have this interface. Like, why don't we use that? Right. So, so they could do it and people find a workaround. So I, I believe in Salesforce. Hopefully somebody over there in the licensing, they'll crunch the numbers. We're all going to get read access to Tableau and Salesforce. It's going to be great next year. It's going to happen, John? I don't think it's going to happen next year. But, <laughs> I don't either. But he's right on the money. I mean, I think you and I are both doing hard nods on that one because, I mean, how many times have you seen the spreadsheet that runs the company? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even with, I don't know, there's a lot of Excel shame out there. You know, mm-hmm. <gasps> you're using Excel still? <laughs> It's a good tool and it's good for what's, what it's for. I know. I use Excel but all the time. The way people get access to that data, it's amazing the things that they compile and put into that thing. Um, and a lot of times they don't have direct access. They, they do exactly what he said. They go to some admin or they go to some person somewhere and say, can I get this once a month? And they do the work to compile all that. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like we got it in. I wish, of course, this was all, this would be a massive revenue hit. It's never going to happen. But let's go to a usage-based billing model. I was thinking that, too, as they were talking. But here's the thing. So the, the problem is Salesforce, and we keep saying Salesforce, but it's really any of these SaaS companies, right, that have the same kind of, you know, seat count-based model. They're not, they're not selling you their server access, you know, server resources. That's a, that's a, such a small percentage of their actual costs. They're selling you their employees' time. Yeah, everything you know, on they top have forty thousand employees. They're you know expensive. That's what you're paying for, and they need you to pay for those employees, whether you use Salesforce very much or not. 
you know, if, if you have a thousand users who, you know, like I said, they have a thousand licenses and they hardly any of them even use Salesforce, right? Mm-hmm. And then another company that has a thousand licenses and, you know, but their users are really engaged and they use Salesforce a lot. Salesforce makes about the same amount of money on either, both of them. <laughs> it just, sure. it's, yeah. Again, you're really not buying hardware resources. It's such a small percentage of, your, of, the, of the cost of a license. Yeah. So that's why this won't work. Again, if there was some way to say, hey, I don't know, we'll, just, we'll, we'll let you keep your spend even. Just like, get all your people on Salesforce because that's not what costs us money. What costs us money is our is all of our people in R and D and in the course marketing and sales. It's a company like Salesforce, but yeah. they still spend so much money on sales and marketing. That's that's what you're paying for. Yeah. So why not just let everyone on? They're yeah, they're, they're going to be a low adoption users anyway. If you let all these other people on who aren't who are not they're not on now because they're just you know most of them aren't going to be high adoption users. Right. They just need to get in and get their pivot table once a week. That's all they need to do. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think the usage thing is is the way to go on that. I think for high volume like community and things like that, which I think there are some usage based ones, um, licenses. I just think they need to be cheaper. But um, yeah, I think for just getting everyone on Salesforce, I think just just have a, a license that works that everyone can get on. And the thing with like a, you know having a, a different user license for each integration. I mean, the reality is like how many, and I know big companies have lots of integrations, but in general, like normal size orgs. I mean, you're going to have anywhere from like one to, I don't know, three integrations, four integrations, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even, any, it's not even worth a, 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 an AE's time to even have that conversation about you about, can, can I get two or three free licenses for my integrations? What? Just two or three licenses. Yeah. I mean, you got big, you know, you're running these big integrations, like those integrations cost a thousand times more than the license does to, to actually build and run. So like, what's the big deal? Like, just pay for the dang license. It's valuable. Yeah. They don't always, they don't always rationalize it that way. Though. I know, I know. <laughs> and I know, I mean, for, for some companies and organizations, you know, that couple, couple of more licenses is kind of a big deal to them. Yeah. I don't know. Everybody's got to hit their numbers one way or another, John. That's the problem. I know. Uh, so do we want to Wrap it up, or do you want to move on to another topic? Because it's four thirty, and I kind of need to be home by five thirty. I mean, I've got a little bit more time. If you have a little bit more time, okay. We also I mean, let me let me look here. We have. Did we talk about the fact that I don't know if this is new or not? Maybe it's not, but I think Salesforce announced that Dreamforce is going to be in person. Is that what they said? I thought Let's they see. were looking to see so if they a, could have it. Now this person. is from April fifteenth. So I don't know if it's changed since then. What was that a couple of weeks ago? Dreamforce. May be coming back this fall and sooner than expected. Um, Salesforce is planning to hold its massive annual multi day summit in person at the Moscone Center from September 21st through 24th. Salesforce is absolutely committed, that's a quote, to an in person event. Well, now we have to go back and look at what we, that we, what we uh, predicted for that. I don't think we predicted to this. Did we not? Year. Okay. Yeah. Although we always talk about the the Dreamforce flu. Now you got to worry about the Dreamforce COVID. <laughs> the Dreamforce COVID. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. If it wasn't so negative, I would say that's a title candidate. Yeah, no. We're not using that one. Yeah. Still. I mean, think of all the... Um, remember the poop ship? 
Is that what it was called? Yeah, that's what we. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know who dubbed it that, but yeah, that's, that was it. I mean, those things are sitting around idle. You can't even do cruises. Think about. I mean, they could just like bring all those in, and uh, that's an environmental disaster. <laughs> that thing had to go out in the middle of the ocean and dump, kill all the fish in the bay. <laughs> After you dump, the ship has to go take a dump. Do they fish in the bay, like for food? People fish in the bay. Do they? Yeah. Not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> People fish in the Gulf. The Gulf isn't always that better either. Anyway, so make your plans. We got an in-person. That's going to be good for us. I will tell you, for our company, I mean, not having in-person events has really, I think, hurt us. Really? Yeah. I, I do notice when I'm on some of the calls with the clients that they they're very personable people, and they they like the personal touch. It's just it's just such an opportunity to yeah to connect with people and to and to make introductions. You know, yeah. and to, I don't know. It's just it's just an important part of business that it seems like, even with Zoom and everything that we've. I mean, I definitely think things aren't going to ever go back to fully the way they were. I mean, there's a lot of things that used to be. You know, I'm going to well, I'm just going to fly there for the meeting. You know, that won't happen as much. But I don't know. I don't think there's any substitute for in-person conferences. Yeah, I, I think it will eventually get back to the way it used to be. I'm already seeing articles about companies kind of going back on their remote policies um, where they're saying everyone can go back and now they're trying to departmentalize it on these people have to be back and oh, you have to be within distance of one of our offices if you're going to be remote because we want you to be able to come in type stuff. Um, there's also the flip side of there's people, especially younger people who like traveling for business and they like going to different places and they like experiencing that. And also for me as an old family guy, I want to be home, Yeah, but yeah. younger, I, I didn't mind going traveling as much. I should point out that a lot of old family people like ourselves also like to get, get out and travel <laughs> for business. It's, it's a thing. Uh, no, I'm a hermit. I, I like to be at home. <laughs> I am too, actually. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It depends. There's, there's some places I like to travel to. It depends on the destination, I think. Yeah. But I was always bad about it. I wasn't good about uh, taking advantage of where I was at. Like, I spent like two years in San Francisco and never went anywhere. Yeah. I'd get off the plane, go to the client, go to my room. I mean, maybe I'd, I'd go with a group. Was that the a... biotech company? Yeah. I won't say which one, but. There, there's a couple of ones, but that was the okay. biggest one okay. where I spent the most time out there for. But yeah. Um, I'd, I'd sometimes go with as a group with some of the guys on the weekends and stuff, mm -hmm. but I never really took full advantage of it, like I should have. Yeah. Did you ever fly your family out there for the yeah. weekend or anything? No. Yeah. The more I got to know San Francisco later years, you know, like Dreamforce type stuff, which mm -hmm. is when I had my family old enough to travel, mm -hmm. I didn't want to take them there. Yeah. You know, after getting shouted by random people <laughs> stalking you, <laughs> you kind of like, I don't want to bring my daughter here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, uh, let's see. Do I have any other things I really wanted to? There was um, there was an article. This is also, I think, a couple of weeks ago. But it was like about the decline of Heroku. Did you see this? No, I saw one about the decline of Docker. <laughs> that would be at odds with this article, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, I thought I, I thought I like pulled some highlights for this, but I guess I didn't. Um. Uh, maybe I'm on the wrong thing. Hang on. There we go. So, uh, this is an info world. But it's, uh, Heroku has long been the gold standard for PaaS, right? For 
software developers to easily deploy their code without having to worry about the underlying infrastructure. But others see this, see it as akin to a magic, magical fallen civilization with a limited future. Um, okay, here's a quote from James, James Govna from uh, Red Monk. The history of IT is littered with platforms people thought were fantastic that don't exist anymore. It has had a good run and huge influence, but nothing lasts forever. Um, I have a bunch of other quotes, too, but we're kind of short on time. But the gist was basically just that was actually that I think, you know, there's always been the complaint with uh, Heroku about price. I mean, I just think their model doesn't. Once you hit like a large scale, you know, the, the pricing model may not fit as well. Hmm. But I, I think the bigger thing, though, is just is things like Docker. They actually mentioned quite a bit Docker in Kubernetes. Um, that has that has kind of taken over with how you deploy and how you, especially or, especially like in a more in a microservice world, you know, mm-hmm. orchestrating all these different services is, that's, that make up your application or your really kind of your ecosystem of applications. Even um, that's how everyone's doing it now, and and with things like Kubernetes. Um, the fact that all these different IASs mm-hmm. sounds like some weird body yeah. body part. Um, sounds like we need to censor that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they all have their Kubernetes as a service. And we there was like a, a brief topic on this in the in our in the Slack earlier about something about learning Kubernetes or whatever. And I just made the comment that, you know, I'm I have read the thing and I've 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 messed around with like running my and I like I'll run I'll like like run mini mini what's it called mini cube mini shipped I think locally and that's pretty easy but as far as like um you know if you're let's say you run a lot of stuff on AWS and you know you want to do you want to do Kubernetes um it it is it is Kubernetes is very complex to run actually to set up and run mm-hmm. but I don't I mean for I would say like most people who who actually have a need to run Kubernetes, which I think a lot don't actually. I still love Docker, um, Docker Compose. I mean, I use that for more than anything else, really. I, it's so easy to use. I use it locally. Um, I use it for things like, and I've got a new build of an integration. I just push it to their Docker, the company's Docker um, repository, and use this, what's it called? Watchtower, I think, that it's always just, it's, it gets a ping anytime you push a new version. Mm-hmm. And it when you do that, it gracefully stops your existing Docker container and pull, pulls down the new image and then starts, starts the new one back up. And you can even have it do like, you know, kind of like roll, if you have multiple instances, like kind of rolling type things or whatever. So and it's, all, it's all pretty darn easy. Yeah. Whereas Kubernetes is more complex. Now, if you need that complexity, that's fine. But even if you do, using like AWSs or like GKE from and whatever, I'm sure Azure has theirs too. It makes it so, I mean, it's, you don't have to run it. You don't have to like spin up the servers and connect all the things and the sidecars and all this crap. It just, it's all done for you. You just, you know, define what your needs are mm-hmm. and it does it all for you. It's, it's, you know, Kubernetes as a service, basically. Right. I mean, that's exactly what it is, really. And, and I think that's, you know, there's, let's say, um, you know, Heroku, uh, by comparison, has been slow to a, slow to allow uh, customers to operate hybrid. Um, mm-hmm. uh, let's see. Um, they, they talk about how pricing has always been a bugaboo. And then especially once they say Salesforce bought it. Salesforce, you had, they had to, this is a guy who used to run Heroku, I guess. At Salesforce, you, you had to make up margin on pricing. So I guess to hit their numbers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
Oh, and then also this one company, um, what was this? Pension B. So they had a big node application, but they also ran Salesforce. And so they use Heroku Connect to connect, I guess, their Heroku applications to their Salesforce. Um, this is, I think, oh, he's a bad word. I think about all the shit you don't need to do with Heroku, and it's a list of like 20 things. Um, he said, yes, it's expensive compared to AWS, but you get a team of 1,000 people who are all there to run a service that, that runs your code very well. Very true. Then he said, that being said, Heroku Connect is still unacceptably expensive, and as we grow and scale, it goes past the point where using that solution makes any sense, and they know that. He's talking about Salesforce knows that. Mm. I, still, I do wonder. I wonder why Heroku Connect is so expensive to run. I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's one of those things that it must cost Salesforce a lot to run that. Because it's such an enabling thing. It, ena- it really enables, you know, their Salesforce customers to be Heroku customers and to bridge that gap and keep them kind of locked into the Salesforce family. Right. Yeah, I don't know. So it seems like they would, they would drop the price on that some if they could. Uh, let's see. I don't know. I feel like there was another good quote in here. I'm failing to find it. Oh, yeah, this is, this is, okay, here we go. The, so since Salesforce bought it, the company has steadily grown its revenues, but left the core product largely alone with, while broad industry shifts occur around it. And then here's the, here's the quote. Heroku is like a fallen civilization of elves, beautiful, immortal, beloved by all who encountered it, but still a dead end. Hmm. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't had to do much interaction with it, but I always enjoy it when I do interact with it. Um, I think it's got a lot of good things going for it. I think the Connect option is definitely expensive. I mean, I've, I've, I've had to opt for custom integration versus Connect just for the cost factor alone. I mean, if a company's got servers they're hosting anyways, just stick a, an applet on there or whatever, console app somewhere and have it move the data. Yeah. Help. I'm not sure if it's changed recently, but they were basically using the same APIs we were, so it's not like they had any specific, you know, back-chain access to everything. I think they probably do. Plus, <clears throat> I, um, I'm, I've never really used Heroku Connect, but it's got, it's got some pretty... So the thing is, is like, you know, you're trying to keep two database, two transactional databases in sync, mm-hmm. but it's, it's across transaction boundaries. These things are not sharing transactions. So this gets very hard, because what that means is something might succeed on one database, and fail on the other, or get behind, or one of the services goes down, and now you got to figure. Well, how in the hell do you? This is the tough thing with integrations. This is one yeah. of the tough things. How do you catch up? And and th- there's really no good answers to that. But Heroku Connect's got some, some kind of like, um, like conflict algorithms and stuff. It can it can if it gets behind, or if things fall out of sync, or whatever, or you miss some things. It can it'll 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 actually start looking at records and comparing to see okay, is it safe to this one changed? Did this one not change? Is it safe to go ahead and even though we're, it's, it's later in time, can we go ahead and update this record on the other system? So it's got a, a lot of that kind of stuff built into it, which is really hard to do in a, in a way that's safe. Yeah. And I can see that contributing to the cost, but it also kind of pushes it out of the reach of some people who has a very simple need. Yeah, because especially it, if they're doing one way, if they're just trying to pull from Salesforce into Heroku so they can manage some mobile app or something, it's it's... You know, it's a bit too much. And then you have things like, what, what's the one that does it for Microsoft SQL Server? DBAMP. DBAMP. And it's like, well, these guys do it for 
incredibly inexpensive. I mean, I think you can get, what's it, like 1300 bucks a year or something like that? I don't know. Um, and I, I, I don't know I, if their conflict resolution is all that great. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I if, mean, it's, it's a, basically a pull and override for, the, for a lot of the operations. It's also one way, which yeah. is way more simple. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that. So when it does need to catch, well, next, actually, no, it's not just one way. It supports, I think it supports both directions. No, it, it, it does, you're yeah. right, but it's, it, I don't think it has, and well, I, I haven't used it in years, not so either. it might have grown since then, and I, I think it might have passed hands a few times, if or something like that. Um, but uh, at the time, it, it didn't really have very good conflict resolution. Yeah, it may not. I don't know. So anyway, um, yeah. Anyways, I have a topic that I can save for next time because I'd like to get into it more. But as a teaser. Um, this is all kind of new stuff that I'm just learning. I, I, being in the Salesforce world as a developer, you kind of lose touch with what the rest of the world is trying to do. And Salesforce developers are probably into this and understand all this stuff, but I'm just learning about it. But it's this it's called island architecture is kind of the term that's being used. Um, it's also used in conjunction with what's called partial hydration as a kind of strategy for websites. And it's it's basically taking all of these applications that we have that are very heavy JavaScript, very heavy client JavaScript, client-side JavaScript applications, meaning everything gets served to the client, it runs in your browser, and that's how the application runs, to a more hybrid option um, where a certain amount of it gets rendered and served as static to the user's, to the user's browser, and only when interaction is required does it start loading libraries and, inter and, and creating those interactions. Mm, yeah, so it's yeah. basically... A static site until it needs to not be static. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought we can get into that a little bit more on another topic. Yeah, that's one of those things that I mean. I'm trying to think of the earlier tools that did that. What was that called? Code. It was almost. It was a code splitting or something like that. But like the Google GWT or GWT, Google mm -hmm. Web Toolkit. It was one of these early um, spa creation tools, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and it its claim to fame was your Java developers who weren't the web developers could build web apps, like single page applications. And you're just using with just with their Java knowledge. Of course, how well do you think that worked? Never. Well. I don't think it worked. I don't think it ever worked very well, but people did build, you could build big, really big, nice, you know, performant apps with quit. If you knew what you're doing. Yeah. But you had, to know, you had like to know, a, you, you had to know a lot of web stuff though. That, that was a, a broken promise for sure. Yeah. .NET ASP was kind of like that too. I mean, you basically leveraged all your VB developers and yeah. made them web developers, but... Yeah, you could basically, I mean, the common way to do it was like you would split your application up into almost like different modules and mm -hmm. they would just be loaded on demand, you know? Yeah. So when you first launch the app or, you know, hit the web page and sign in, you know, might load the module just for like the home screen and like the basic stuff. And then if you go into the accounting module or whatever, you know, okay, then it, then it will pull down all the, the scripts and the the templates and the, all the assets for, for those separately. Mm. Is that kind of what you're talking about? It sounds very similar. Um, it, it seems like this type of technology is kind of in early days, so there's a lot of nuance to it, which I think is worthy of exploring. And there's some new frameworks that are in the early, early stages, like not even beta, like maybe say alpha, pre-alpha stages of being built to kind of try to support this stuff. And in, in a way to try to make them relevant or accessible trying to support things like React and Vue and all that kind of stuff um, through some kind of build pack um, that would basically handle getting all that loaded up and, and managed. So, 
Yeah. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Because uh, it's especially going to start trying to leverage all the web component stuff that we have now, all of the you know, uh, HTML slotting and templating and, and all that, and JavaScript importing and all that kind of stuff. So it'll be interesting to pick that apart and see what's going on there. And also just, you know, what's what Salesforce may or may not do in the future with, with Lightning. Because, I mean, right now it's basically everything's local, everything runs. There's some caching to try to improve performance. But I think this it is a possible answer to some of the performance issues. Well, it's, it's also interesting how, and this, is, this has been going on for uh, several years now, but the, you know, the shift back to more server-side rendering. It always goes back and forth. I know. We always start off I with know. server and dumb terminals, then we put it onto the client, and then we run to all issues with the client, and then we bring it back to some kind of hybrid model, and then we go back to the server, and, and then we go back. And then they came up with this dumb term, which I hate. What they call it? Like isomorphic JavaScript yeah. or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Which, I don't know. I guess that's that's a purported benefit of having a language that is your client-side and your server-side language. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, anyway. Well, let's do a quick st- uh, check-in on my, uh, on my Salesforce stock, John. So when did I buy this? A month or two ago? Something like that? About, uh, right around a thousand bucks worth. And I'm back up to, I'm, I'm total $13 up. Nice. <laughs> but $10 of that came today. <laughs> <laughs> um earlier it was up quite a bit like a but that they i think earlier in fact i was almost thought this was a, a time to buy some let me let me let me uh, double click on this <laughs> double click into this conversation here let's see um yeah just recently like past this week i mean it's it's dipped a bunch um and i thought man maybe i should buy some more good good time to buy and if you're looking to buy some salesforce stock they are it's down 25% off its 52-week high, still. Oh, wow. So, if you think it's not all a big scam, then uh, it might be a good time to buy. Maybe. I don't know. It's so hard nowadays. Is, is Tesla a scam? Is, um, is Bitcoin a scam? Yes. Is, is all these SaaS, you know, <laughs> deferred revenue and, and non-GAAP, are these all a scam? No, they're just very intelligent with managing the tax <laughs> yeah. laws. So I hope they're not a scam because I've bought um, all those things I just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> and to that, no. Okay. Yeah. Well, but we should wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's wrap it up. Um, okay. So, if, uh, dear listener, if you are not in our Slack yet, please come join us. It's a, uh, a fun and helpful conversation. Um, and that is at gooddayserpodcast.com. And you click on community and you just uh, fill out the form and John will dutifully add you. I do my best. Does, does, he gets a buzz on his watch every time someone signs up. I do. Uh, Sometimes yeah. I'm sleeping, though, so it takes me a bit. Well, I expect you. I, don't know, I, don't know, I, feel, I feel like we should have a guaranteed 15-minute turnaround time, 24 hours a day. Mm. Was that an SLA? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, an incident response guaranteed. Yeah. Um, we have an email address, which you can email us, info at gooddayserpodcast.com. And actually, the the thing to do there currently, because we still have stickers, is uh, we we will send we can send you stickers anywhere in the world. Good day, sir. Stickers for your laptop or your bag or your I don't know your bathroom stall property or something like yeah. Jeremy does. Yep, your favorite bar. Um, yeah, just send us. You can send us an email to that email address and uh, just include your mailing address, and we can send you stickers. Again, I think anywhere in the world it seems to be working so far. Oh, that one that like I sent. I don't know how many fifty or hundred stickers like. Over a year ago, I forget where we're still. I think it was Belgium or somewhere. Those just showed up. They finally showed up. It turns out they've been in the mailroom the whole freaking year. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that because everything shut down? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I'm not sure this person had even gone to work in the past year into oh, the wow. office, but, oh. but yeah, got the, got the stickers. So if you don't have them at first, check the mail room and then pin Jeremy. <laughs> yes. Check your mail room. <laughs> uh, what else, John? That's it. The likes, the reviews, yep. whatever you can do to help. Keep the love coming. Send us email. Oh, you can also send us, we, you know, we always appreciate like topic suggestions and questions that we can just use to fill air, airtime. Those always help. But I don't, yeah. you know, we need to be getting more of those. So get at us. And to that, I say good day, sir. That you get fast. nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.